Okay, welcome to another edition of the Edlo podcast, and I have a special guest here. I am here with Mike Peterberg. Uh, Mike, how you doing? Very well, thank you. Well, I'm glad to have you on here. You currently, um, you serve on the High Council of the Citrus Heights Stake, and what is it that you specifically, your your duties on the High Council? I am the uh, stake Sunday school president. Okay. So, so for those of you who are not members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, Mike is involved with making sure that all the Sunday school classes are are teaching the right things and have teachers and you oversee how many congregations? Five, six? Six. Six congregations in the Citrus Heights area. How long have you been on the High Council? This time, two years. Wow. So, um, and one of the things that I found so interesting about you, you were actually in our uh, our elders quorum and you shared some things about yourself, which piqued my interest because um, you seem to have uh, gone away from the church in a pretty heavy way and then come back. And uh, that story is kind of near and dear to me because my dad was the same way. Um, well, not exactly the same way. My dad grew up Jewish. He got, he was converted when I was about, well, he was baptized when I was about four. And I would say he converted when I was 18. And so um, right before I went on my mission. So I figured I wanted to have you on and interview you and, and talk with you about your story. Cause that's what this is about is about stories. And so um so why, why don't we start? Um, tell us about your family background, your makeup, uh, where you grew up. Okay. I, uh, I grew up not far from the heart of Zion. I was uh, raised in Idaho Falls, Idaho, uh, which is not far from Rooks uh, or now uh, BYU, Idaho. I am the second in a, a group of four children. I have an older sister, me, a younger sister and a younger brother. Um, my parents, my father and my mother, um, they, they married not long after World War II. And so, um, they, they carry those kinds of, uh, those kinds of values to us in our family. My older sister and my younger brother are both very active in the church, but myself and my younger sister both fell away from the church as soon as we were out of high school. Um, my, I stayed active in the church and, and fairly close to the church, except for some of my activities. Uh, I, I didn't keep a good core of, um, I guess, friends. My, my peers were not Latter-day Saints and, uh, some of them had habits that drew me away from being a, a good Latter-day Saint young man. And so, so are you, when you're talking about that, are you talking about like in high school or are you talking about school. college? High yeah, school. High school. Okay. Uh-huh. So, and why did, why does that, why real quick? Cause I, I, I think about this too. Why do you think that that had such a significant effect on your decision to leave? Well, um, as I look back on, there are two things that I regret mm-hmm. from my youth. One is I regret not getting my Eagle Scout Award. Mm -hmm. I think as I grew up and I interviewed 
um, young men coming out of college for jobs with the defense industry. And uh, those who had experience in scouts and received their Eagle Scout Award had had skills, not, not mountaineering skills, but um, skills in being productive and, and being follow through and all those other things that, that come with get, being an Eagle Scout. The other thing I regret is I did not go on a mission. Mm. And both of those primarily were because my friends were interested in other things. Um, and those were the people that I hung out with. So we were interested in doing other things. And I, I really, I think rather than me not being interested in those things so much as I was drawn away by the, by the tinkling bells of the other things they were doing. Mm. When you say tinkling bells, meaning like it, it just seemed a, a more attractive at the time, like. Well, in high school, I'm, I'm sure everybody that's been in high school has gone through somewhat the same thing is that um, it's very, it, it's difficult to look beyond high school. Everything yeah. that's going on at that point in time is life critical. And so being accepted by a peer group, finding a peer group you fit in with, um, being accepted, being liked, um, it's very important. And um, the group that I found my peerage with was uh, a group that was not necessarily of good repute. So um, I think if I had my choice again, there were other people that I probably would have cultivated friendships with, but um, mm. I kind of fell in with a, with, um, I fell in with a group of people that were doing bad things or mm. starting to get me to do bad things. So, so let me ask you, poke around a little bit about that, because I, I could tell you that there was, um, I have, very similar my family kind of similar like i i was lucky in that i ended up kind of hooking up with a couple of guys who you know they were a little rowdy but they always went to church and they became my best friends and then i had a really strong kind of seminary group of members of the church that all kind of went to the same school and it was really strong which I believe really had a big impact on me ending up going on a mission. My brother's five years younger than me. And there really wasn't that for whatever reason in our, in our stake, that, uh, that group of kids wasn't as strong and they weren't as close. And so it was harder. Uh, you know, he isn't, he isn't active and he didn't go, you know, mutual wasn't important for him. And uh, you know, he went to seminary, but he didn't hang out with the kids, you know, um, so it sounds like in your situation, those kids were there, but you kind of fell in with the other group. Is there some reason that happened? Did you feel like you didn't necessarily jive with the, the kids that were kind of in the good graces of the church? Well, the group, the group of young men that I had the opportunity to be friends with in our ward, um, we went to Philmont Scout Ranch with a bunch of boys. And two of the boys that were on that group were young men that were in our ward. And both of them were pretty popular in school. Um, um, they, I don't know, I, my father was the one who set up the trip. And there were a couple of things that, that the boys wanted to do that weren't really on the trip. And so um, 
they kind of blamed me for some of the items they weren't able to partake of. So they started teasing me. And, um, you know, like the kid that gets ostracized, I ended up being called, um, you know, names, Ichabod Crane, because I was a real tall, lanky, skinny boy. And so they made fun of me. And then when we got back, they still made my life as miserable as they could. And I know there are a lot of kids that are a lot of people out there that understand or have been there before. Um, thank goodness it wasn't the time when we had, uh, we didn't have social media, but um, it was pretty difficult to work through. So I didn't want to have much to do with the young men that were in the, in the ward that were in the, in the church troop in our uh, scouting organization. And so it, it really drove me away to a place where there, where those kids were not. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, I think that, uh, Sometimes I think people wonder, you know, I, I can tell a story. I wasn't there when this happened, but apparently <clears throat> I remember one time in one of my wards, a young boy uh, who was our age came, um, uh, came to our ward. And I guess, uh, uh, I, like I said, I wasn't there. I didn't, I didn't really get to, to know him much. But he came one week and he had a bad, he had a last name that I guess the kids found kind of funny and they made fun of him. I mean, the whole time he was there and never saw the kid again. And, you know, uh, I think about that. I wasn't, like I said, I wasn't there. So I, I didn't, you know, I didn't participate in it, but I know some of my friends who did. I know they felt bad too. And so do you think, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, obviously, but do you think that maybe if those kids had been a little kinder to you, that maybe things would have turned out differently? Um, I, I think, I think if it had been, so the, the, one of the problems was that the young men that were in our ward were also very popular in our high school. Mm. And so it, it not only happened at church, but also at school. I think maybe if it hadn't been an important group of kids at school, it may not have been important, but it kind of bled over into kind of the whole school, the city environment. So I, th I think if that had not have happened, um, but then I don't know what the Lord had in store for me because I'm the kind of person that has to learn the hard way. So maybe mm -hmm. there would have been something else that came along. I, You see, I, I don't look back on anything that I have experienced in my life with any, any, I, I, I regret the stupid things, the, the stupidity of it, but because of the life lessons that I had, that I was forced to learn in the direction that it finally ended up, that it's made such a strong testimony that um, those, all those experiences come together to make me who I am. So, um, if those things hadn't been there, I don't know that I wouldn't have just been sort of wandering along the edges of the straight and narrow path. Um, mm -hmm. It took me a long time to find it, but I think those experiences really taught me um, things like forgiveness and um, um, love and um, how to put yourself right and how to repent. And um, so I, I, I think I don't look back on those things and think, well, what if? Because I, I the lessons that I learned are irreplaceable, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good and that's a great way to look at it. 
Now, moving forward, so you you mentioned, uh, I think you mentioned off air. You said uh, as this part was going on, there was uh, you were having a little bit of strife with your parents as well. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Um, well, my father and I never never really got along. He was a perfectionist and um, could never see. He kind of heaped on with where the, where the kids did also. So um, I could never do anything good enough for him. Um, it was difficult. He would, um, he wasn't physically abusive, but he was emotionally abusive in the sense that, um, I feared him. I was very, very afraid of him. And my relationship with him was, um, very strained and I was very, very rebellious because of it. My mother was my father's wife and was my mother. And I didn't, I wasn't able to really separate the two of them. So I had a diff I had less difficulty with my mom than I did with my dad, but it made for a very strained relationship. So, so when I finally graduated from uh, high school, I definitely wanted to go to college out of town. So I went up to the university of Idaho in Moscow, Idaho, and uh, found that getting away from the influence and the, my father was quite a controller. So, when I got up to college, I was uh, I, I found my freedom and took it to excess mm. as a result of my rebellion. When you were growing up, you said he was a controller. Did that mean like in your household was would you say it was kind of almost authoritarian? Very. Yes. Mm. Um, you know, it's it, it's interesting because I, I actually just had a podcast. It hasn't dropped yet. I don't know if it'll drop before yours or not. But I was talking to a friend of mine who had a very similar experience to yours. He's my age. He's a good friend of mine from high school who he he left and he's come back. And and he kind of we, we were talking about our friend group. And I came in, a, in my family. I don't feel I was ever. I mean, we always went to church. I was expected to go. Um, but I don't ever feel like a mission was like expected or that like I was expected to, you know, we weren't, we weren't real hard. It wasn't hard core. If that made sense, it was, you know, we did the things we were supposed to do, but you know, if I got into a little bit of trouble here and there, it wasn't, you know, I, I they didn't come down on me hard. Whereas some of my friends, you know, the ones who were really kind of sheltered in, they're the ones who tended to struggle when they were out on their own. Did you feel like that was kind of your experience? Um, yes, quite a bit. I mean, my dad, if he wanted my opinion, he'd give it to me. Mm. So, um, I, um, I, like I said, I could never do anything well when, when he and I would do things together because there were projects that we'd do every year, uh, as winter would set in, he had his beautiful roses outside and we would prepare the roses for winter. And it was quite a process to get them, you know, trimmed up and covered and prepared for winter. And I knew the process, but no matter how hard I tried, my assignments were never good enough for him. He would always find error and show me what I was doing wrong and belittle me about it. So um, in that sense, um, that was controlling. And then the things that, that we were allowed to do, um, I... I don't know. My father controlled a lot of what we were able to do in, t in terms of where we went, when we went, our curfews, 
um, and punishments were not physical, but he would uh, just verbally berate us if we didn't toe the line. So that was very controlling. Authority. Wow. Yeah. So, so you get away, you get a, you get a little taste of freedom and you take it to excess. And what do you, and can you give us an idea of what you mean by that? Oh my, I guess the first few nights that we were there, we stayed up all night playing hearts. Mm. Uh, you know, what's a, what's a curfew? What's a, what's a bedtime? And then, uh, uh, homework was allowed to slip and made it even harder to catch up. Um, then weekends were party time, um, cause there was no having to come home and get checked. So it was, uh, just a lot of the, the worldly things that were going on at the college at a, at a party school just were very attractive because I was never allowed to be around that kind of stuff. And suddenly not only was I able to be around it, but it was open to be able to participate. And so, and you participated. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. So now in, yeah, while you're going to school, did you feel like uh, you were at least, were you, were you attending your classes? Were you struggling in, in school? Um, at first I was, um, I, I was being, trying to be very studious. Um, I carried good grades. Um, my first couple of semesters, I didn't excel, but I had good average C's, which, and I was an A student and I was capable of A, A's in college, but I just spent too much time uh, goofing off. And then as the, um, as time wore on and I got farther and farther behind in some of my studies, I just would not go to class and give up. That's how I finally ended up on academic probation. So, mm -hmm. um, and, and having, it was during the Vietnam War and that's when the draft was available. And if you had a student deferment, kept you from being in the draft. And it wasn't, it was just before the lottery. Um, but because of my, I guess my playing around way too much and not caring about my grades as I should have, um, or caring about my, not necessarily my grades, but studying properly, regardless of my grades, if I was studying as hard as I could to be a good student, um, I was not. And so I lost my student deferment to the draft and that opened me up to receive my draft physical, which the next step, like I told you, is the entering the draft, being pulled up and called up and sent forth. Mm. And so you, you, you realize that it's likely you're about to be drafted. What do you do next? Um, well, there were... I, I could go back to school, but since I lost my deferment, I would still be available to be drafted. It was no guarantee that I would be drafted, but given the point of the war, um, I probably would have been drafted. But my other choices were um, to pick a branch of the service to join so that if I got, so I could avoid being drafted and avoid going to Vietnam. So, um, I really didn't want to go to combat. So I looked at the Air Force and I thought, well, it'd be really great to go into the Air Force four years, uh, learn some skills, maybe do some college, 
maybe serve in Germany or someplace nice. And uh, so I enlisted in the Air Force. And so how old are you at this point? 19. 19, okay. And so uh, how did that work out for you? Um, <laughs> in some ways, it was marvelous. And in some ways, it was, uh, I still ended up in Vietnam. Mm. Um, the military, um, I learned a lot in the military, and I think it was great for me to go through. Um, it didn't help me spiritually, but it gave me a, a lot of things that I needed in my life. Discipline, uh, self-discipline, um, pride. I didn't have a lot of pride. I, my dad kind of took all of that away from me. And so as I was able to do well in the military, um, I was able to gain some pride and some abilities. The main thing is that I did end up in Vietnam, but as a result, I met um, a girl that I married and brought her and our daughter back when I came back from Vietnam. Mm -hmm. I was returned to uh, the United States and was stationed in California not far from here up in Yuba city at Beale air force base, which was a mm. wonderful place to have been dropped off. Mm. Uh, so I, I think I needed that. I think heavenly father knew I needed that. He needed to make sure that I was cared for, but he also needed to make me appreciate or put, not make me, cause that means that would say that it wasn't my agency that allowed me to make choices that would later on be a benefit to me. Mm. And so the benefits coming out, you learn discipline, you get married, you have a daughter, um, you learn some skills, come back. But what were some of the things that you said the way it wasn't great? Um, just the same worldly things that are prevalent in the service. Um, mm -hmm. Drinking, drugs, partying. Um, in a war zone, it's pretty hedonistic. Um, so those kinds of things, experience, still experiencing those kinds of things in my life. Uh, just being at war, being in a war mm -hmm. zone. Yeah. Uh, people. Now, people what, what was your what was your job in the Air Force when you were in Vietnam? Um, well, I ended up when I first got there, I was in a, I was in a rough position, but I ended up in a job at, in Saigon at the seventh air force headquarters. And, um, they, I was, I ended up in a position, an office position that kind of set me up for my later schooling and abilities. I was a management analyst, which was a statistical guy that did business analysis for the military. Um, we, we would do put together, put together briefings. And when I was in Vietnam, it would be, um, it was the last of my tour. So we were doing assessments, bomb damage assessments, um, uh, kill ratios, those kinds of things of combat, and just learning how to do statistics and, and what's important. So mm. that kind of led to my interest in going into college and going into business administration. 
Interesting. Wow. So um, now when you come back, you got a wife and you have a daughter, any inklings at that point uh, of wanting to maybe come back to church or were you still kind of far away from that? Um, there was, I, I didn't have any, any inkling at all of church or religion. I, I bounced in and out of being an agnostic or an atheist or, um, because I had, in, you know, in church, you learn a lot about the Bible and all the Bible stories. And, and so I remembered a lot of the Bible heroes and the Book of Mormon heroes. And so um, I, I looked at the Bible. I would bounce in and out of whether that was a, a true revelatory document for us to learn from, from God and from Jesus, or if it was just a history of a group of people. And so it never really, I, I was never religious for about 30 years, but um, I did not, I didn't seek being in a religious, um, I guess in a congregation or an affiliation. Um, so I, I never had much, I mean, they, they say that there are no atheists in foxholes. Um, so, I mean, there were times when in Vietnam that, I would pray whether I would believe it or not. It was like, well, if you're there, get me out of this kind of thing. <laughs> right. Really for 30 years up until just before I turned 50, I, I didn't have any interest in organized religion. Interesting. So now um, talking about that, you know, I, I've, I've interviewed a couple of people who are veterans of foreign wars and uh, it changes you quite a bit. Um, can uh, and it sounds like you saw you saw some things while you were down there. Um, talk to me about when you came back, how that changed you. I I don't think anybody that goes into war and sees the kinds of things that go on in war, uh, death is pretty prevalent, and the threat to your life is constant, and the fear. And you, I don't think. I think everybody comes back with just a little bit of. PTSD, just because of the environment you're in uh, when you're fearing for your life, but nobody comes back the same. Um, it, it's just a, you have appreciation for life and the sanctity of life, not in a religious sense, but a gratitude for just being alive today and experiencing the wonderful things of being alive. So you, I think you really look at life a little differently. And unfortunately that can all also lead to um, eat, drink and be merry today because tomorrow you may die. Uh, mm. Sometimes being very close to death, um, it, it leads you to say, well, man, I, I, there's a lot of things I gotta, I gotta do for fun before I get there rather than, you know, there are things I need to do that are good before I go. Mm, I see. Um, and, and in, I mean, you said being around death. I mean, did you have friends that didn't come back? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, uh, did that take you some time to kind of, I mean, I'm sure you're probably still not over it, but did that take some time to kind of wane? Did you, do you think that had a part to do with your struggles? It, it, there, it, it's, uh, it's kind of weird the, the mental place that you are in 
at times where the world around you is a different place than um, when people die in combat, it's expected that someone's going to die in combat. And you mourn, but you're also grateful that it's not you. But you do everything that you can to help those around you to have their backs so that you can protect yourself and everyone else. Um, if someone does die, there's a, um, and there's a sadness. And then there's also kind of a, a glory in that person having died defending his fellow soldiers. Mm. So it's, um, it, it's different than having friends, having someone killed in a car wreck here back in the States. Because although it's a possibility that someone you know is going to die for some reason, I, I, it's not a very high probability where in combat it's a, there's a high probability. So it, it's, it's different. So death, um, I, I think when I came back from Vietnam, um, you're just thankful, uh, like getting out of, getting to Tonsonut Air Base in Saigon was kind of a blessing because it took me out of a bad environment. And then going to, getting back to the States, you know, now you're back safe. And um, I didn't really, until I guess the 30 year lapse there, one of the things that impressed me to start thinking about, I guess, not necessarily organized religion, but spirituality was the fact that I saw a lot of my friends at that point that were, that I was running with that were, they were either dying um, or going to jail or um, seeing the consequences of very, very bad lives. Mm. And that's when it came to a head that this is this whatever I'm doing isn't fun really there's no joy in it um, I don't see any future in it for me or anybody else what am I doing wrong and what is where am I going to go from here and that's when it really hit me about about having lost people so um, I, that's a I know it's a bit of a jump ahead but let's talk about that a little bit um, when you said the type people you were running with, what kind of people were you running with? Um, uh, primarily a biker crowd, mm. uh, hard, hard riding, hard partying, um, biker people, mm. drugs, alcohol, um, those kinds of things. Mm. And with these types of people, I mean, were you, were you a part of a biker gang? Uh, no, no, not a, we, we ran with bikers that were biker mm. gangs. We dealt with Hells Angels and Nomads and other people. We, we hung around with them, but we, we were never affiliated. Yeah. Okay. But you're still participating in the lifestyle. Yeah. And were there uh, times where you found yourself in situations that you were like, I got to get out of here? I mean, otherwise I'm going to get in trouble. Um, subconsciously, sometimes, um, 
it's when you're in that lifestyle, you don't run away, but you pretty much let what comes come. And if you get out of it, you're okay. If not, so be it. So, I mean, it wasn't like I ever felt like I had to run away from it. It's just that I finally realized that this is no way to live your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so instead of running away from a specific circumstance, I just figured I needed to walk away from a lifestyle. Mm. Now, this lifestyle is kind of, I'll just call it the biker lifestyle that you were living. I mean, you know, you, you mentioned that you, that was the part kind of a catalyst of getting you out and having a transformation. Was this the kind of lifestyle that you, I guess, what part of your story does that lifestyle become prevalent? I'm not sure I understand your question. Yeah, like, so we we kind of jumped ahead because you just got out of the war, you're married, you have a daughter. And then it, when you're 50, you realize, hey, I'm hanging with this crowd where I'm, you know, drinking, there's drugs, people are dying or going to jail. So you get out of the military. Where in the story do you start falling in with the biker crowd? Oh, that was pretty quickly. Oh, okay. So this is like you come back and these are the people you're hanging with. Um, um, yeah. Quite a bit, and, yes. And you and you brought a you brought a wife from Vietnam, and I got to imagine that there's not a lot of biker gangs in Vietnam, or maybe there is. I don't know that much about it. Uh, how did she react? Um, she was. Um, she didn't like a lot of the things that I was doing, but um, she she was working. She found a job and worked, and we had our daughter and. Um, I, I wasn't really heavily into it. It was just kind of like on, on weekends once in a while. And so it wasn't like suddenly I dragged her into a a biker lifestyle, but we were still in the military for, uh, six months after we got back and then moved to Sacramento and I was, um, going to school and working. And so it was, it was just the people that I knew that came back from Vietnam that were, some of them were into heavy partying and it ended up just being around some of the biker groups. So it wasn't an absolute lifestyle at that point, but it, that's where it actually started with uh, being around that kind of people. But it, it wasn't like I instantly dropped into a, you know, the hell's angels or anything. At this point, as you're going through life, I mean, are you, are you talking to your parents? Are you talking to any of your family? No, not really. I would see my parents once in a while um, on a holiday. Maybe I'd go visit. I didn't send letters. I didn't call. I really didn't communicate much with my with my parents um, mm. for for that thirty years. Mm. They they didn't come to visit me. I didn't go visit them. So we were. I, I think we're very estranged during that period. Okay. And and did some of that? I mean sounds like you, you had a pretty rough growing up, but do you think that part of that also had to do with the choices you were making? Like they didn't approve and you knew they wouldn't, or was it more just resentment from the way high school went? What do you think? I, I, I think all of those things made me very rebellious. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of it, the, the way I was treated at school, I had to find a peer group. The peer group that I found was a rebellious peer group. Um, mm-hmm. My father never really accepting anything that I did as being um, good enough also made me, well, 
I guess if I can't do it that way, I'll do it my way. And so that mm -hmm. becomes a rebellion. So I, I think all of those things put together created a rebellious young man, an angry, rebellious young man. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, let, let's stop for a second and reflect a little bit. Um, if there's somebody listening who finds themselves in a similar circumstances to say 25 year old Mike Peterberg, uh, what, what with the, with the, you know, the passage of time and with the experience you've now gained, what would be your recommendation to somebody who, who's doing, dealing with those struggles? Well, if, if, if someone is struggling in the sense that they're questioning questioning that life and questioning what can I do? How can I get to a better place? Um, if, if you have, I think you need to really take, you have to look at your life and you have to take an inventory and take an inventory of the things that are going on in your life that are making you happy. Mm. And how much of that is, is happiness or how much is joy. And then if you look at the things that are bringing you joy, that's ordinarily that's a pretty small part of your life if you're unhappy and looking for a change. And so those are the things that, that you would want to take an inventory of. How do I make those things more prevalent in my life? Uh, for instance, uh, do I crave spirituality? Do I need... Do I need to hand my life over to a higher power? I'm, am I struggling with things that I can't change? Um, am I an alcoholic? Am I a drug addict? I might not be that that bad, but those extremes are there, and there are there are programs that help you to understand that whatever you're doing, some things are out of your power, um, some things are not within your control, but you can hand them over to a higher power that will help you to get through it and help you to get better and help you to find things that will make you happy. It, it's first, I guess, realizing how much control you have once you've taken an inventory, how much control do you have over the things that you don't like and what do you need to do? 12-step um, programs are great even if you don't have an addiction a 12-step program, whether it's a AA or NA or uh, the church's 12-step program, help you to understand how to prioritize the things in your life by bringing in the most important thing that we have, which is God, and bringing in a higher power and helping you to appreciate what that higher power can do for you and learning what your part is in relationship to creating a relationship with our heavenly father. And if, if you can just do that, it's like the little mustard seed. If you have faith, it's only the size of a mustard seed and you exercise it, it will grow. It's the same, exactly the same thing with the things that you look at in your life. I was, as I was struggling with coming back, it was not, looking to come back to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but I was searching for spirituality. I was searching for peace. Um, it was 
it was very elusive because there was very little that I was doing that allowed me to experience anything spiritual. But as I started searching for it and I, and I looked at my best friend who was in Vietnam with me and had come back, uh, his mother had passed away and he, um, he became a member of the lay ministry in his Episcopal church. And so he started to, to, he looked different. He acted differently. Um, he, he and I talked and we talked about the savior and things. And so I started to remember primary songs and, um, I am a child of God was so, so important. Um, not just because of the catchy tune, but the message <laughs> that in it was incredible. Um, at the point, um, First of all, understand that I did not have a good relationship with an earthly father. And then to realize that I am the son of a father in heaven who loves me unconditionally. Um, that's just, that's phenomenal. Phenomenal. Yeah. So um, there's so much I wanted to ask you about there. So you, I was going to say, as you were talking, I was like, you sound like somebody, I have a lot of family members who've gone through AA, NA, and I was like, you're sounding like someone who's been through a 12-step. Um, and so uh, would you classify yourself, you mentioned you alcohol and drugs, would you classify yourself as someone who was, a, was an addict? I am, yes, I'm a recovering alcoholic. Um, I guess I don't, I, I smoked, so I was a tobacco-aholic. Mm. drank coffee, so I was a caffeine-aholic. <laughs> um, I used lots of drugs. I don't know if I was habituated or addicted, but uh, I guess you can call all of them. They still all require a 12-step kind of approach. And the, the actual 12-step program is is identical to... AA or any of the 12-step programs are identical to repentance. Um, so, yes, having uh, having experienced having to come back from that, um, it, answer your question, yes, I am an alcoholic and will always be an alcoholic. I just don't drink. Yeah. So, um, you know, what... A question I have for you. It's funny. I, I don't really talk to my dad about this. He's he's very similar. He's been sober for, for over 25 years now. <clears throat> Do you ever find yourself in stressful, stressful situations having any urges to go back or are you rid of all of that? Um, I, I've been pretty blessed that uh, once I quit, um, it was difficult to get through the first I guess first couple of months, but after that, I've I, I haven't had any situations where I've been um, extremely tempted. So mm -hmm. I've been blessed in that respect. But I've uh, I guess I think the main reason is that I don't put myself in a position where that's an option. Mm -hmm. um, I I stay very close to I, I stay close to the spirit. I I. I love my callings. I go to church. We go to the temple. Um, my spiritual self is more in control of my mortal self, such that I don't think I have opportunities to be tempted. Mm. 
So let's let's talk about why you're going through this, you know, this process before we, you know, we're kind of jumping back and forth, but talk to me about your relationships um, before and after your transformation and how they, how they worked. I mean, were you, were you struggling in relationships before as you were going through this process? Um, Because um, a lot of what we do has to do with who we do it with. Mm. And in order for me to really be successful and leave things behind that were bad for me, I had to leave basically everybody. There, there were, I would say that there were only a couple of people that I maintained friendships with that were outside. They were stronger relationships, but they, because they were centered on things that didn't have to do with the lifestyle. But I, there was, I don't know of anyone that was in that. I don't have any friends that were, that uh, are still around or were around once I left that, that lifestyle. Um, so it, it was, uh, my relationships were very damaging to me. Um, I had three marriages, three failed marriages. Uh, uh, one, one daughter, uh, luckily she still loves me, but, uh, it's, I, I guess it, it's, it's a very dark 30 years that I didn't, I, I, I had to leave it all behind. I had to pack it up and put it in a, put it in a box and bury it deep and leave it. Uh, because those relationships were very bad. The one relationship um, that was very, very important. When I was a little kid, um, I'd say like from the time I was eight until I was 15, I would go to my cousins. My aunt and uncle had a farm in Preston, Idaho. And I would go there in the summertime and they had a, it was a dairy farm and they raised alfalfa and grain and I would work there. And um, my cousin was two years older than me and he was my best friend and he was my idol. And uh, I wanted to grow up to be just like him. And Heavenly Father put him in my life um, for a very specific reason, because he and I kept in touch such that he, um, he would come to Reno, Nevada. He worked as a worked for a, uh, the county up in Nevada, up in Washington, and so they would have. He would come to the uh, uh, conference for his business. He was in the mosquito abatement work for the county, and um, he would go to the conference that was in Reno every couple of years. And I would go up there and I'd meet with him. And um, he was very active in the church. He and his wife. They, choir. Uh, he was a uh, young man president who's Boy Scout. Um, he's a Boy Scout leader for a number of years. And so, you know, here I am, the biker wearing my my leathers and my uh, long hair and earring. And I'd go to Reno and we'd still hang out and have a great time together because we, I just, I really idolized him and he was a good guy. So at the time that I started to struggle spiritually, um, trying to find some connection spiritually. He and his wife called and said that one of their conferences that was supposed to be, there were two conferences and one was supposed to be in New Orleans 
And that's where he spent his mission. And he would have really liked to have gone to that one again, but that there was one here in Sacramento. And for some reason, he felt that he needed to come to the one in Sacramento. Um, and would I help set up or, or arrange for him to be able to go, he and his wife to be able to go to a sacrament meeting? Mm. And that really took me back because I, I really wasn't interested in coming back to church. But I, I told him I'd look into it and then I'd, I'd you know, I'd take care of, find out where the ward was and church times and then get them there. Um, so they arrived. Um, it was on a, it was on a, on a Saturday and um, I went, I went to their room and talked to them and we sat and we talked and talked and talked. And he, and he asked me if I would go to church with them. And I said, well, no, I, I'll drop you off at church and then I'll pick you up afterwards, but I really don't want to go to church. Well, as we talked and just before I left, I said, well, what can it hurt? Right. I'll just, I'll just go to church. That'll be fine. Um, so Sunday morning, I, it was the Santa Juanita ward. Uh, it was Folsom first ward then. Um, I said, okay, I'll just go with you because there's no reason to go back and forth. So I took them to church and, um, oh my gosh, there were some incredibly wonderful people that came up and welcomed me. And I'm wearing a three-piece suit, right? So here's this <laughs> long hair, ponytail, an earring, and a long beard and um, in a three-piece suit. And so I, I really stuck out. But people were so friendly and so nice. And uh, there were actually some people I work at, worked at Aerojet. And so there were some people that I knew from work that were in that ward. And they were just so kind to me. And we sat down. And, and like I've said so many times, I, I, I don't remember what was said. I don't remember who gave the talks. I don't remember what was said. But I felt the Holy Ghost for the first time in 30 years. Mm -hmm. um, it was transformative. When we, when we finished with church, um, we went back to my house and and we sat around and we spent all day Sunday just talking about my questions about spirituality. And before my cousin left on, I think it was Thursday or Friday when they flew out and I took him to the airport and he said, you know, if you have any more questions, uh, there's a couple of boys, a couple of young men that I can give you their number and they'll answer any questions you have. They may not be able to answer it for you right there, but they will get an answer for you. And, and I still wasn't convinced to come back to church but it planted the seed so that it wasn't more than a few weeks until I called the missionaries and asked them to, to come talk to me. The important thing about that relationship is that Heavenly Father put that cousin, that wonderful cousin in my life, in a relationship that he was the only person in the world that I would have listened to about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints when I was searching, when I needed the answers, Heavenly Father provided the person that I could trust to give them to me. So that was a true relationship that I realized and I kept. The other relationships that I had were not for, for any purpose other than to, to drag me down. Man, you know, it's, it's funny you bring that up there. Are, <clears throat> it's important to realize that good influences are often placed in your life for a reason. 
And those relationships are so important. I can think of several relationships that I've had um, where, where they played a pivotal role in getting me to where I need to be in difficult times. And um, it's part of the reason why, you know, sometimes, you know, I get a little bit of flack because I have, I have a lot, I have a diverse group of friends and some of them aren't always doing the right things. Some of them former members of the church, some of them not, but you know, they go off and they do stuff that people think are bad and they cut them off and I don't. And that's really the reason is because one day, if everybody drops these people, one day they're going to, they're going to have a, they're going to have that transformative moment. And if they need somebody to call, I don't mean, I don't mind being that person. And we all need those people. And do you feel like now are you, now that you've gone through your transformation, it's made you more empathetic to others? Oh, absolutely. Um, We're all sinners. Yeah. Every day we're sinners. Uh, Some more sinful than others, but we're all sinners. Uh, Heavenly Father loves every one of us. The Savior died on the cross for every single one of us. They're our brothers and sisters. They're the ones they're the ones that need our help more than the people at church. I mean, the, the mm-hmm. people at church, we we hold each other up and we bear trust testimony and we show our love one to another and and we we do um, our callings so that it it helps them and helps the church. But the ones that really truly need our love and our support and our help are the people that are that need the gospel, that need to come back. It's um, I kind of look at it in, in, in like missionary work. Um, sometimes people think that, you know, it's how many Book of Mormon, books of Mormon you hand out and, you know, getting people into the baptismal font. And mm-hmm. I, I look at it as um, when, I, when I came back into activity in the church before, when I was at work, I was a really rough, tough guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a real bad language, mouth, dirty swear word, every word. Well, people didn't know that I had come back to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but they sent something was different with me and people stopped swearing around me and they would apologize. Um, I just, I, I, had a, I had a different aura about me as I started to progress. Well, I see that that joy that I received and that's what other people can experience. Not necessarily that they have to read the Book of Mormon or get baptized, but if they can just get a little glimmer of what God has in store for us or or a little bit of love for what the Savior's done for us and how much he loves us and, and the care he wants for us, that joy and relief that people can get just by that um, is what I want to share with people, the joy that I have in the gospel. Yeah, I mean... You know, you you said something that struck a chord with me. There's something that <clears throat> I used to hate. I've I've been, you know, ever since I I feel like most of the time since I've been uh, I came back from my mission, I have somehow been involved in the missionary work. I was I was on the high council for a time and working in the missionary work, and then uh, and now I work, you know, in our in our ward missionary correlation and uh, to used to teach what was the gospel essentials class. And one of the things that always kind of irked me, and maybe it's just because I'm a little different and not the same way, but 
so many people would say, well, all of my friends are members. And it would drive me insane because we're not, I just feel personally gospel according to Josh Edlow. If all of your friends are only members of the church, um, you know, or active members of the church, maybe you're not doing it right. You know, I mean, we, we've got, there's so many people out there who are just, it's, it's amazing to me since I've kind of, for whatever reason, in the last few years, I've been kind of, I don't know if I'd call it blessed, but I've been tasked. It feels like with being the guy that people call when they're struggling with faith or maybe their marriages or, or something or the other. And what I find so interesting is how many people are just like really just waiting for just one encouraging word, you know, um, they just, they just don't have it anywhere. And we have this whole gospel that is supposed to bring the ultimate joy in people's lives and you're not sharing it, you know? And, and the fact that they think about your cousin who think about how amazing that story is and how many people had to be involved in that. He had the faith. He could have very easily said, ah, yeah, Sacramento, but I could go to New Orleans. But he followed the prompting and came to Sacramento, not quite knowing why. Right. Reached out to you, asked you to find him a sacrament meeting, kind of pushed you a little bit to come with him, answered questions for a week. He wasn't in Sacramento for the conference. You know, he was in Sacramento for you. And it's so amazing how we have those promptings and sometimes – don't follow him. Think about the, the chances we miss. So I was, I was so blessed that he did. He did listen to that prompting and he came not knowing that I was even thinking of anything um, yeah. close to, to struggling. He was just coming to see me because of the prompt, the promptings of the spirit and he followed through with it. And it was, uh, he didn't discuss things with me in the way of, you know, Michael, you, you really, you, you need to come back to church. It, it had nothing to do with that. There was no pressure. There, it, we just talked about my life and principles and how my how my life was devoid of certain principles and what I was struggling with. And I would ask a question and he would give me a solid gospel answer for what would fill that gap. Mm. And so it, it was, uh, it, I mean, it was the, I think it was, it, it set me off on the ideal path to come back to church. I'd, I, I headed once I decided to call the missionaries. I was pretty much convinced that my next that I would I would go, and if it was right, then I would go all the way. I, there would not be I would not be a a partial Mormon. I would either be a full on Latter Day Saint or not. So you know you know that's the amazing thing too. What I find really interesting. I had a very similar experience very different but similar was that I was on my mission and when I was there there was a point where I was like what am I doing here this doesn't make any sense I'm not getting anywhere and I had a companion that said you know let's get down and and, uh, and pray about it and uh, and that was the first time where I got an answer but I think the reason why like a, like a true I know it's true answer you know 
Um, and, and I really think the reason why I did get an answer at that point was because I remember when I was kneeling down for that prayer, I remember saying to myself as I was kneeling, okay, so this is it. Like if I get an answer that is true, I got to commit. I got to be all in, you know, but if I don't, then I'm all out. I can't be in the middle, you know, and I got the answer and I've been all in ever since. Granted, not perfect, but I mean, like I've been, you know, I've, I can't think of three weeks in a row that I haven't been to church. And, um, and so I think that that is such an interesting thing that you just said that, you at that point you were like i'm either all in or not i'm a full mormon or not um was there one moment like was there one thing in particular that you saw that was really the catalyst that started this transformation or was it just an accumulation of just 30 years of not feeling like you're going anywhere well it was it, it was more than just 30 years of not going anywhere. It was 30 years of going in the wrong direction, mm-hmm. um, really going someplace, but that's not where I wanted to be. Yeah. Um, and it was, I, I think there, I, you know, it's, um, it's, it, there are little miracles. And so I think when my cousin came, I didn't realize that miracle until a little later on. But the feeling that I felt in sacrament meeting um, was very important because I I think I told you about my best friend was in Vietnam and he and I still remained very close friends um, after coming back. And he was a lay minister in the uh, Episcopal church down in Bakersfield. And so for Christmas every year, um, I I was divorced and single for several years. And so I would go down to Bakersfield for midnight mass on Christmas Eve. And that ceremony is incredible. They have um, the, the, the father, um, um, the priest in his vestments, in his vestiture, leads the a group of chosen people from the church that walk down the center aisle and there's a person in front that's swinging um, an incense bowl with smoke, incense smoke coming out. Uh, then there's him. And then right behind him, there's someone walking with a great big tall pole with the scriptures open. Um, then behind that are different people, um, other assistant ministers and then um, lay ministers. And so it's a whole procession that comes down the, the middle aisle. And then they, they get up on the stand and they sing and they read scripture. And it's, oh man, it's, it's very touching and very wonderful and, and a tribute to the Savior. But I never felt the Spirit. Very, I, didn't, I didn't feel the Holy Ghost. That one meeting that I took my cousin to, the sacrament meeting, and I felt the Holy Ghost was so impressive to me. I hadn't felt the Holy Ghost for 30 years, but it was so strong so impressive to me. Um, And then as I prayed, because my cousin told me to pray, so I prayed about it and prayed about it. And and when I finally decided, well, let me talk to the Latter-day Saint missionaries, see what they can do, see if they can answer some more of my questions. Um, 
having lived over on Santa Juanita for 15 years and having my records still in the church in the Folsom First Ward, I had home teachers assigned and they would come by every once in a while and I would meet them outside with a cigarette in one hand and a beer in the other and sort of chase them off. I'm not interested kind of thing. And then in the mail every month, um, um, the sellers put out a little, it's called the Folsom Nugget. It's a little, the little bulletin that they would send out in the mail every month. And they may not have thought that that effort of putting out that little bulletin once in a month was of much use, but I had seen it in the mail every month and I watered it up and I threw it away and I said, those, those Mormons are going to throw it away. And I would water it up and throw it away. Well, when I decided I wanted to talk to the missionaries, I knew because I had looked at that little bulletin once and saw the number of the missionaries, the phone number, I knew where to go to find the phone number for the missionaries. And so I waited for that bulletin to come in the mail. And when it, when it came in the mail and I called the missionaries, there was this huge confirmation that I was going in the right direction. So I, I think all of those cumulatively coming together as little pieces, little confirmations, little miracles, um, those all sort of accumulated together to make, to make my heart change, to soften my heart enough that I was open to the missionaries coming and giving me the first lesson. And from then it was just, well, I'll keep testing until I'm ready. Um, when I went to church the first time, I said, I'll, I'll, I'll go. And if I like it, I'll let you know. And if I like it, I'll continue. And so they were really, they were really afraid that because it was a, we went on a um, fast Sunday and they had fast and testimony meeting. And you know how those oh, are? The yeah. most dangerous week to take an investigator or less active. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I, I, I felt the spirit. It was yeah. so strong, people bearing their testimonies. And so um, after the, after the meeting and, and as I was sitting there, I went to take the sacrament and the, my wonderful missionary said, well, you shouldn't partake of the sacrament until after you've met with the bishop. And I thought, oh, that's, you're right. That's serious. I shouldn't be doing any of these things unless I'm ready, like you said, to be all in. And so um, as soon as the sacrament meeting was over with, I looked at him and I said, uh, can you get me an appointment with the bishop? I think I'm ready to come back. Nice. And uh, that, all of that together, I think just the spirit, having the opportunity to have the spirit speak to me in a very special and personal way. Um, those are the things that softened my, I wasn't fully changed yet, but it softened my heart enough that um, I could accept the changes or implement the changes. Man, so um, talk to me about, because I, I really want you to, to kind of give us a sense of what it was like to come back, because there might be some people listening who are on that verge, but don't know where to start. So tell us what it was like when you said, okay, I'm coming back. Like, what was it? Was it a tough process? Was it fairly easy? Um, I think making the decision to finally come back was very difficult. But once I made that decision, I truly feel there was no turning back. It was, it was, um, I didn't know everything. So there was a lot I had to learn. 
Um, I was ready to learn. I was I was hungry to learn. I wanted to read the scriptures. Um, I I did things like I opened up uh, the Book of Mormon, and um, I just turned to a random page and started reading, and it was King Benjamin's discourse. Mm. And part of what I had been dealing with was um, politics and and people and and superiority people and you know people in high positions and um, why were they leading us in the wrong direction? And here was this wonderful king that was so humble and loved God so much, and I just started to feel this this incredible joy that if I could if I could just find these things that these gems that were what the savior wanted us to do. If I could find those things, I would find more joy. And so it was, it was um, here a little, there a little, you know, Mm -hmm. building little piece on little piece. So it was mostly accepting the fact that there was no turning back and that I was feeling wonderful, positive things. Um, my attitude changed. I was I was happy to be alive. Every morning I would wake up with joy in my heart. I was happy with people. I addressed people differently. I uh, I, I had love in my heart. Um, but it was taking that first it was taking that first step to know that um, I'm a sinner and I can't keep going the way that I'm going. I have to change things. So I have to find out what are the things that I need to implement that are good and then stop doing the things that are bad. And it, and it was a, I mean, it was a learning process, but it, it was very beneficial and loving. And I had wonderful people to help. Um, I had an elders quorum president. Uh, I had a bishop. I had um, a, a ward mission leader. Um, I had a, a stake mission president. All these people that were so willing to, open their arms and and answer questions and help me out that I didn't feel I was alone that that the minute that I the minute that I accepted the fact that I was going to move forward there were a hundred hands that were out there for me to take that would help me to walk that walk and not alone tell me how your relationships changed once you started coming back to the gospel They were the relationships that I had. Um, okay, at, at uh, two parts. The relationships that I had with the people at work. Um, before I came back to church, I was um, very successful at what I did, but I was also very abrasive, um, somewhat like my father. Um, I was opinionated and abrasive. And so first of all, let me stop you right there and ask you, do you hate that when you think about that? <laughs> do you you know, knowing your relationship with your father, do you ever go, uh, oh, just like my dad? <laughs> Constantly. In fact, I'm I'm going through I'm going through something right now that I'm I'm having to work through my relationship with my father. Uh, my mother just passed away, and so I'm I'm working through relationship issues with my father to come to grips and to peace with some things. And, and so I do, I look at lots of things that I do. I look at, sometimes I, sometimes I'm my father when I'm talking to my grandkids and I have to stop it. But yeah, I, I, I see that and it's, it, 
it's hard to not be that way. Um, yeah. Part of it's genetic, but most of it is, uh, you know, that's just how I was raised up until 18. So you don't see an option other than you, you eventually learn how the savior wants us to be with our children, our friends. But as soon as I, I was abrasive. And so I had, I had um, created some very difficult times with some people at work. Well, as soon as I started coming back to church and started softening, my heart started softening, that abrasiveness went away, but also my desire to be, I guess, um, to have joy in my heart and to share joy, um, just in, in being happy and saying hello to people and, and being up, um, not, not in a weird way, but um, helping people, lending a hand, and I actually went to a couple of people that I had, um, I guess I had kind of uh, estranged from me and apologized to them and begged for their forgiveness. And then one person that I had worked for that said, you're never going to work for me again. Um, I got assigned to him to work for him. And so I, I went to him and I said, I, I know this is going to be very difficult for you, but I'm, I'm willing. I want to work for you. I want to learn from you. I know our prior experience was very uh, fraught with destruction, and I want to put that behind us and start new. Can you forgive me for anything that I did to you? Made this just huge, amazing change at work um, with people. Uh, my relationships changed enormously with people outside the church, but people inside the church... Um, Oh, gosh, I made such wonderful friends that were supportive and loving and helpful and friendly. Like I said, I had hundreds of hands that reached out to me all the time constantly to help me. So I had missionaries in my home every day. Um, when I was um, when I came back to the church and I went and received my endowments at Salt Lake, every single missionary that had served in the mission in our ward over that year, every single one of them was at my endowment session in the Salt Lake Temple. So um, I, I forged, I was blessed to be able to forge friendships, to, to have a very soft and open heart. So everything changed. Everything changed. And yeah. then um, yeah. within, a, with, within a year and a half, I guess, I met my wife at church. Oh, my incredible, my perfect person my wife, who I, I, I love with all my heart. Um, I met her and what a change she made to me also. So um, the gospel created an, a, an opportunity for me to, to mend friendships, to make friendships, and to make and forge a relationship with my eternal mate. You know, <clears throat> today I was uh, assisting in teaching the youth and we were talking about uh today's topics were uh from philippians and uh, colossians and it was the apostle paul at one point of the lesson talking about putting off the old you and becoming the new and I can't help but think, I mean, you, you know, the Apostle Paul was a great example of everything we're talking about here. And, uh, you know, you're, you're kind of a modern day prodigal son here. And uh, tell me, tell me, 
like, where do you think you would have ended up if you didn't make that change? I, I, I don't know. Um, I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know. And it's difficult to speculate because, um, Heavenly Father still probably had other plans in mind at points at points in my life that I would have had a soft heart or a, or a question, but um, I, I don't I don't know. I, I think that was it was just pivotal that 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 was the time, um, and I and I and I I took it. Um, Heavenly Father placed that there, and it and it wasn't like it was. It wasn't like Paul. It wasn't like Saul when he was stopped in the middle of the road. Um, you know, it wasn't. It wasn't like Moses in the burning bush. But it was. It 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 was more than just a soft whispering. It was. He had to bring someone. A very important person from my youth. He had to. He had to place someone in my path, to say, "Look, um, I'm here to help you. I love you. Uh, Heavenly Father loves you." Uh, the only person, like I said, the only person at that point in my life that I would have listened to about the gospel, and our Heavenly Father knew that, and He physically brought him to me, put him down in front of me, so that I could have an opportunity to make a choice. I, I, I don't. Man, I, I think my agency, that was, I know that I could possibly have said no, but I hate to think of what would have happened. I just like to think of the, the, the importance of the decision that I made and that I would rather not. I mean, it's like smoking cigarettes. It's easy to quit. I did it hundreds of times, um, but it still led back to the same thing until I finally quit and didn't do it anymore. Um, and all those things that I no longer do, I I don't I know I'm just one small step away from falling, and so mm. I'm not willing I'm I'm not willing to go back to any of those things, and I don't think I, it's very difficult to speculate on what would what I would what life would be like if I hadn't taken that step, um, it, because it was it was so absolutely celestial the thing that Heavenly Father prepared me for. Uh, you know, <laughs> this might be more rhetorical than anything, but I mean, how long has it been since this transformation now? How long have you been reactivated? 25 years. 25 years. So if someone would have told you 26 years ago that one day Mike Peterberg would be serving on the high council at the Mormon church, uh, would you have ever expected that? No, it would. It, in fact, I would have probably been um, very adamant that I would not step yeah. into a Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Saints chapel. So here's something I wanted to also address with you, and your your story is so impressive. But you know, you said something that really struck me because I don't think we hear it a lot over the pulpit. You came in High Council Sunday to speak to our ward and you were talking specifically about the come follow me and uh you know the program where we we read from the scriptures daily 
And you said you started off by saying that you struggle to do all the things that you are supposed to do and that at times focus. And that struck me because that is such a vulnerable thing to say that everybody who was sitting there in that, in that chapel could relate to because we all do. We all struggle to do all the things we're supposed to do. We all lose focus at times. But I found it so interesting because it's so rarely said. Why did you choose to say that in your talk? Because I remember that being like at the beginning. Why why did you start off with that? Um, I, I I don't want anyone to think that I'm anything more than a mortal man. I'm just a man like everybody else. I struggle probably more than most people with some things. Um, I, I want, I wanted my message to go out to the congregation for them to understand that it was from a point of love, not from a point of instruction, or from a point of, I'm the high counselor, and so you have to listen to me, and this is from the stake presidency or anything like that. But it was my experience as as a sinner, as a man, that in all humility, I'm trying to present you with a message of how you can implement some things in your life to help you and help your family and to create an environment that we've been asked to do, but is very difficult to do. And that I love and understand everybody's difficulty. And I've, I've had the same excuses, but um, I'm, I'm not here to create. I don't want to teach anybody from a point of guilt or from a point of authority, but just from a point of love and caring and equality. You, you said something else today actually that i found your your whole talk was basically the message i got was to focus and at times when you lose track refocus and you said something really interesting today you said um something to the effect of you realized that you're only a couple steps away from falling at any given time and that struck me quite a bit as well because i've seen so many of my friends i mean i i've fallen at times I and mean, we all have but i've seen some friends and people very close to me who've made grave mistakes that have really hurt hurt themselves the people they love what is as someone who has been through i mean has has experienced both sides of this coin what are some tips that you have for people to help yourself refocus and to not take those steps? Well, to, to not take those steps um, is, is a, is a commitment um, to, I, I loved, uh, what was it? Aaron McGavick said um, he had talked to some people that said, Oh yeah, I'm familiar with the straight and narrow path. I've crossed it several times in my life. Um, it's, it's hard to stay on the straight and narrow path all the time. 
there's so many things that we that we should be doing and and so many things that the world distracts us from doing if you look at just advertising on tv and and every message that you see on the news and um it's all it's all there to make us either titillate us or make us angry and if we fall into those the little things um it it's just don't we we can't get discouraged because everybody does um, every night you need to get down on your hands and knees and every morning and pray for strength in the morning and pray for forgiveness in the evening. Um, we were not asked to make an appointment with the bishop every time we sin. Um, depending on how egregious it is, we, we take it up with our Heavenly Father between us and our Heavenly Father in our prayers. Um, if it's more egregious, we, we sit down with our priesthood authorities, with our elders quorum president. Um, and then if there are true moral issues, then we go to the bishop. But our opportunity is to talk to our Heavenly Father about what we've done. What we, when, when Heavenly Father asked Adam in the Garden of Eden, what hast thou done? Heavenly Father knew what he did, what he was asking. He was asking Adam to confess, to, to realize and confess that he knew what he had done was wrong. And so it's important for us to verbalize that to our Father in heaven, for him to appreciate the fact that we realize it. And then we go down the process, down the path of repentance. Um, for something that's not difficult for others, it's even more difficult. But um, there are so many things that, that are hard to avoid, but the closer we are to the center of the road, the gospel doctrine road, the closer we are to the center and not trying to play out on the edges, but if we're in the center, we're less likely to fall off the cliff or, or have those temptations really truly influence as much. Um, I, 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 uh, I like to think if I were to ask you, um, who are you? What would you say, Josh? Who would you say you are? Oops, you're frozen. Oops, we're frozen. You there? there we yeah. There we go. Okay, sorry about that. I can edit that out too. So go ahead and. Say, I, I lost you for a minute. Go ahead and say what you were saying. Where, where, where did I where did I end up? You know, you were um, we you, we had talked about the center. You're staying on the center, and oh, then okay. um, and then you'd kind of gone from there. Okay, because what I was I, I I would ask you um, if I ask you who you are, what would your answer be? Who are you? Who are you, Josh? I'm a well. I'm a member of the church. I'm a Christian. I'm a father. I'm an attorney. I'm a podcaster. I'm a pro wrestler. <laughs> I'm all sorts of things. <laughs> so, so the, the first thing that you define yourself, and I would hope that that would be your definition to anyone that you ever talked to that asked who you are is, um, I'm a Christian. I'm a church, a member of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, when we're asked in the sacramental prayer, 
when when we say that we will take his name upon us, we're taking the name of Jesus Christ upon us to become like him. And if we're going to be like him, then our outward appearance may not be, but our our aura and our our everything about us needs to reflect Christ. And the less of that there is, the more opportunity there is to be something else. A lot of people start out by saying, well, um, you know, like I'm, I'm an attorney. And then, uh, well, okay, other than that, what are you? Well, um, I'm a husband and I'm a father. Okay, and then what else? And you go down the list and you can tell from the answers how far down the list they are from, from Jesus Christ being the most important thing in their life, defining who they are. And I think if we're going to take his name upon us, we need to reflect him. Um, we, and so the more that we're like him, the less likely we are to, to stray or to be influenced by things. But then if we do, we can't, if we do something, sin in some way, we can't let guilt or anything else get in the way of our progression. We shouldn't, we should not ever compare ourselves to anyone else in the church. But the only way that we should compare ourselves is to how much better am I today than I was yesterday? And, yeah. and, and, and so if you fall, it's not a problem to say, well, oops. Um, okay. I just have to work harder at getting back. So, so true. And, and I love what you said about, you know, there's, there's so much of, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's so much of people deciding not to come because maybe they don't look like everybody else, or maybe their family situation isn't like everybody else's, or maybe they look at the, you know, the everybody else's church and they look so perfect. And this, this, the, the thing is, that's all really a fallacy. Everybody's dealing with something, but what you said is so important. It's not how you look compared to everybody else. It's how you look compared to how you looked yesterday, you know, and everybody's on a different spiritual path and everybody is a different area. Some of us have been going to going to church forever. Some of us have recently come back or have been back for 25 years and we're all trying to figure it out. And it's just, you know, your personal relationship and your journey with God is the most important. So um, did you have something you were going to say that add, add to that? Um, only that people shouldn't get discouraged. Um, and we shouldn't, we as, as, as people, as brothers and sisters should never, ever, ever use guilt on anyone. Um, and, and I would say this about our children. We, we should never guilt our children or teach them to do anything as a result of guilt, especially if you look at it in terms of if, if you, your, your young daughter, if you get her to do things, you know, or not do things because of guilt, somewhere down the line, there's going to be a young boy, probably in high school, that's going to get her to do something she doesn't want to do because he's going to put her in a guilt situation. Mm. And, and if you want to avoid that, you need to teach her not to have guilt as a motivation. And so we need to love our brothers and sisters and know that our being in church isn't just to glorify ourselves. You know, we're there to glorify our Father in heaven and our Savior, Jesus Christ, to show our worship for him, but to have him validate us 
And it's kind of like a great big, huge AA meeting, especially fast and testimony meeting is just a sharing time. Um, we're there to help and support each other. We're all sinners. And if you look at anybody, any family in the ward as, oh my gosh, that family is so perfect. I wish my family was like them. You probably don't know everything about that family and the struggles they're having, and they're probably not perfect. Guaranteed. <laughs> the last thing that you want to do is, I guess, try to set yourselves up to fail. And, and we sabotage, our, sabotage ourselves by putting, setting ourselves up to fail so that we may hold someone on a high pedestal that will cause us to fall. And uh, we just need to be careful how we treat and look at other people, uh, teach with love and not guilt. And our Heavenly Father is the absolute epitome of love and comfort and joy for us in our lives. Yeah, and I draw I draw back what you just said um, about how you treat people. I draw back to what you said about the kids when you were in high school and how they treated you. That potentially, I mean, who knows what would have happened, but potentially that could have set you on a course to get 30 years to come back from. Potentially, right? Yep. And, uh, you know, obviously everyone has their agency, but those kids probably didn't know that you were struggling with your dad. They didn't know that you were having those issues. And the thing that I find so interesting is that I think everybody is fighting a silent war in their own mind and you don't know anything about it. And, you know, like I said earlier, I'm always amazed at how just a little bit of kindness to somebody who's struggling can really make a difference in someone's life. I had an experience just recently where uh, one of my good friends, I've known him for years and years and years, and we've waxed and waned and keeping in touch, you know, he gets busy, I get busy. And we don't, we don't always talk all the time, but anytime we do, it's, it's right back to being friends again, you know, and called me in a really, really sticky situation. And I could tell very quickly that no one had been kind to him, maybe even for good reason, you know, for a while. And um, it's, you know, I, I think I, there's something to be said about Christ-like love, even for people who might have hurt themselves or you, you know. Um, I I have really appreciated talking to you about your story. I want to ask you a few questions that I ask everybody, and I want to see what your answers are. Okay. First, what would you say was your biggest success in life? Um, my, I, I believe my family, my relationship with my wife and her children and my daughter and our grandchildren. I think that, I think that's the greatest success is, is, is just our, our sealed relationship and the family relationship that we have. Awesome. What would you say? I know we've talked a lot about a bunch of different things, but what would you say was your biggest failure and what did you learn from it? There are so many failures in my life. Um, I, I would say 
my my biggest failure was falling away from falling away from the gospel and away from my family. Um, taking that very low road was probably the biggest and, and starting at a very young age and, and just letting it continue was the, the biggest um, failure in my life. But I think, I don't know that if I had stayed in Idaho Falls, Idaho, gone to school uh, in, in Moscow at the University of Idaho, gone on a mission, come back, uh, got married in the temple to some little, um, some young lady from college or from Idaho Falls. I don't know that I would have been anything but maybe a lukewarm Latter-day Saint. Um, I think what I had to go through galvanized me. Um, I had to be purified by fire. I had to learn it on my own. I don't think that I would have had near the testimony or the drive that I have in the gospel had I not gone through what I went through and realized the joy and the difference that I have now. Yeah. There's something to be said for, I mean, not encouraging anybody to do go off the gospel path, but it's so interesting to me that a lot of the strongest members of the church I know at one point or another strayed from the gospel path. And, um, I I find them to be some of the strongest members. And I have to say, I'm so impressed because I got to imagine how hard it would be after that long to come back. It's just impressive that you were willing to make those changes. Um, It really says something about you. Well, the Um, wonderful thing about it is that um, there are so many things I have totally and completely forgotten that Heavenly Father has blacked out of my memory Mm -hmm. that, um, and, and, and it's, it's forgiveness. There are things that I won't forget because I have benefited from them, but the things that I have been forgiven of, there's very little memory of those things. And so it helps me to stay strong now because the path was difficult where I am now is in a very strong place, but I have, I have forgiveness. I have the savior's love that, that forgave me of so many things and that strengthens me. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Last question. Uh, At some point down the road, we all pass away and we have funerals and then there's usually a eulogy. What would be the one thing that you hope someone says about Mike Peterberg and your eulogy? Well, that's a it's a funny thing because um, I've I've gone to a lot of funerals lately of people that I really love, and um, I have actually been starting to write my own eulogy. Mm. Uh, I think. I want I want my grandchildren to say that I took every opportunity to tell them I love them. I want my wife to say that I was 
a good companion, and that I loved her dearly with all my heart, and that even with my faults, I was still a good husband to her. And what my other friends to say that they know I loved them and that I did all I could to help them in their lives. All amazing things. And I, and I have no doubt that they will. You've, uh, you know, I, I know we don't I haven't known each other for very long, but I've been impressed uh, every time you've spoken in church, every time you've added to a lesson hearing this, um, you're a very, you're a special person. And um, I really appreciate hearing you not only because, you know, one of the things that I have personally struggled with for a lot of my life is that my life, you know, my family um, has not always looked like every other member of the church. And, um, you know, and I've always struggled with, because I was different, because things are different, because, you know, maybe my family doesn't look the same or because, um, you know, I, I don't like the things that normal, you know, members of the church do. Um, I don't necessarily fit in the box. We need people like you who are faithful, who are loving, who are strong, who don't look like everybody, whose story doesn't look like everybody else to show everybody that they do belong. And I appreciate it because you helped me feel like I belong. Thank you. So I thank you for this opportunity. Uh, I really appreciate your your candor and, and your questioning and the opportunity to to uh, hopefully, if there's anybody that will listen to this, uh, even if one person is touched, it will have been all worth it. Thank you. Absolutely, I agree. For those who uh, who've listened. Um, subscribe and if you're on that spot if you're in that spot that mike talked about when you're ready for a transformation take the leap because as you can tell it can change your life and so until next time we'll uh we'll see you again